Hello and welcome back to episode 40 of Double Reel, the podcast magazine for the discerning film nerd. My name's James Adamson and I'm here to regale you with nerdy chat about films and the world of cinema generally. I'm joined as always by my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Thank you very much. It's good to get back into it. Last week, we brought you the first part, Double Reel Monthly, with news, reviews of new releases and chat about how we're fitting film watching into our busy, exciting lives. If you haven't heard it yet, please do go back and download it, where you'll find reviews of new films, including Oppenheimer, Barbie and Heart of Stone, my look at David Cronenberg's Cosmopolis and James's look at a Nick Cage film picked at random. Just to mention again, if you're enjoying the pod, we'd be very grateful if you could take a couple of minutes to leave a five-star review about us wherever you get your podcasts. Now it's time for our regular features. We start with Classics and Recommended, where we dip into our list of great films we haven't got round to seeing yet. For this episode, it's John Wayne leading a big star cast in the Howard Hawks western Rio Bravo. Our hidden gem looks at lesser-known or underappreciated films that deserve a wider audience, which this month features a Tom Cruise film that flew almost literally under the radar, American Made. Then it's The One That Got Away, where we look at projects that filmmakers tried and failed to bring to the big screen. This time we look at John Borman's unsuccessful attempt to make The Lord of the Rings 30 years before Peter Jackson managed it. We close our features episode with the remake Hate Watch. This month we discuss the 2011 version of Conan the Barbarian. Next week it's The Big Conversation, where we discuss a topic from the film world in more detail. We'll tell you more about that a bit later. Before we proceed, let's just look at some of the messages we received on the features from our listeners. Um, On our one that got away, John Borman's Lord of the Rings, Dell said, I'm not sure about the idea of the Beatles playing the Hobbit characters. I'm glad we didn't get a live action version back then. We needed to wait for the technology to catch up. I love the Jackson versions. I remember coming out of the cinema after watching Fellowship and being exactly like Jeff Goldblum's character in Jurassic Park. You did it, you crazy son of a bitch, you did it. And Gary says, it's impossible for me to imagine what this older version of Lord of the Rings would have been like, but I would have been interested to see it because I'm a big John Borman fan. Uh, On our classic Rio Bravo, Connie says, this was classic Sunday afternoon viewing when I was a kid. Great stuff. Enjoyed seeing a traditional Western icon like John Wayne paired up with more modern stars like Dean Martin. Quite a lot of interest in our hidden gem American made. Uh, Gav says, apparently they left out a lot of stuff from his life because it was just too insane. I really enjoyed it and stand by my opinion that Tom Cruise is the last movie star standing. Matthew says, I love this film, really underrated. Paul says, the only thing that would have improved this film would be Nick Cage playing the lead role. Um, Okay. On our remake Hate Watch, Conan the Barbarian, Dave says, who'd have thought you don't get good results when you remake a classic film with a talentless hack director, a star who hasn't done anything decent outside of Game of Thrones, and a mediocre villain from Avatar trying and failing to fill the shoes of James Earl Jones? That sums it up. <laughs> uh, plenty of talk about our promoted remake restoration. We're going to do that when we've done the remake Hate Watch. We're going to be talking about the last action hero. And I asked on the socials what the makers of the film should have done differently given that it flopped and got critical drubbing when it came out. Some strong views were expressed. Darren says nothing should change. It's a great film that works perfectly. People just didn't understand it. Carlos says it's excellent. Its only problem was being released at the same time as Jurassic Park. Uh, A few people said that or similar. Miguel says the kid was a bit annoying, but I like the film. Great villain. Uh, Edward says the only reason it got bad reviews are that film critics are snobs. Andrew says don't change a film. Don't change a thing about the film. It was just ahead of its time. Not one negative comment about the film on the socials. Everyone defends this film. So we'll, we, we have a case to make when we get to that bit. <laughs> um, thanks very much for your messages. Now on with the pod. Now for the classics and recommended feature, where we try and watch something from our backlog of great films instead of the endless movie repeats rotating on TV. 
Our watch list includes films one or both of us hasn't seen before and recommendations from you, the audience. Committing to do so for this feature has helped break the mental block around some of those films and meant we got to see and share our thoughts on a wide range of films, from the late William Friedkin's groundbreaking police thriller The French Connection to French surrealist fantasy The City of Lost Children. We have a growing list of other films to do for this feature as we keep adding films we haven't seen yet, and from the steady stream of audience recommendations. You can go to letterbox.com slash doublereel and click watch list for all the films on our list, and you can make recommendations there and all the usual places on our socials. This month we look at an all-time classic film from the 1950s, which isn't the type of film we would normally watch to be honest, but has been an influence in so many films and filmmakers that we do love. The classics and recommended feature for episode 40 is Rio Bravo. So James, I hadn't seen this before and I presume you hadn't either, no? No, I hadn't seen it, mate. What was your what's your background and knowledge to this film on the whole? Had you heard of it? Had you heard of like fandom of it and everything else or I think I just heard the term Rio Bravo. That was pretty much it. Like as it, it that was it. Nothing else. Um and then obviously we watched it and now I know a bit more about it. Yeah, so it's probably um where we start is the fact this was directed by a guy called Howard Hawks. This was relatively late in his career because one of his first big hits was um the original version of Scarface in nineteen thirty two, um, which was a thinly veiled uh, biography of Al Capone. Uh, black and white classic gangster movie from that era. Um, so obviously that was an influence on Brian De Palma, enough for him to actually want to go and remake that for you know for the modern day and the cartels and the cocaine, uh, the cocaine epidemic. Um, by the time he's doing Rio Bravo, he's expanded into bigger sort of Technicolor films. He did make a few westerns, but he he didn't really sort of specialize in a, in a genre. He did some quite famous um, uh, screwball comedies with Jimmy Stewart and Catherine Hepburn. He did film noir. He did The Big Sleep with Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, which we've discussed in the podcast before. Um, so he's not, you know, he, he flitted from genre to genre. The Hawks style is is difficult to pin down, but he's, he's a huge influence. He's one of the big people that get discussed in film school or were discussed in film school for the 70s generation. He was one of the biggest touchstones for the French New Wave. The likes of Jean-Luc Godard and Truffaut and all of them, they were... Um, they were trying to break free from this old sort of stilted style of filmmaking that they didn't like very much in, in, in French film. And they looked to Hollywood and some of the classic Hollywood mainstream, despite the new wave being seen as being quite arty, the French new wave. Um, their big influences were like Hitchcock and Hawks, who were very much about mass entertainment. So he's really very much in the DNA of films. His biggest his biggest um, like influences, you know, that people talk about the most, John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13, which we've discussed, um, or I've certainly d- discussed, is is kind of a remake of Rio Bravo in the sense that it takes the same plot, but it does something so different with it. Um, that's like a tight, like uh, urban thriller that's almost like Rio Bravo, Cost Night of the Living Dead. It's a pre- police precinct where it all happens over the course of a single night, where this happens over like six days. Um, Scorsese was a huge influence, uh, it was huge influenced by this film, and it, but in a different way. And... And this is one of Quentin Tarantino's favorite films. Can can you see where Tarantino's in, like uh, like influence from Howard Hawks? Can you see where that's shown up in any of his films, mate? Having watched the film now, yeah, a little bit. I do think Tarantino's quite distinctive, but yeah, I mean, he describes this as his hangout film. What he loves about Rio Bravo is the fact that you really get to know the characters and spend time with them before the action plays out. And it's kind of funny that like John Carpenter's done really the opposite. He's taken the plot and made a much tighter film. 
but I think if you look at like Reservoir Dogs, uh, Tarantino says we're going to watch these guys have a cup of coffee together, and we're going to talk about one of the one of the characters doesn't like tipping, yeah, and there's an argument about whether you should tip or not. That's got absolutely nothing to do with the heist that goes on later. Do you know what I mean? But it, it, it introduces you to the characters. And in Jackie Brown, you spend time with the characters. The story progresses. And once upon a time in Hollywood, you spend lots of time with the characters. Do you know what I mean? You really do get to hang out with the, with the characters. So they've all taken slightly different things from it. I mean, I think what Scorsese's taken from this film is he's he uses it to kind of like, it taught him the dynamics of like groups of men and how they work together. And he's he's basically used that kind of group dynamic in things like Goodfellas and stuff like that. It, it what do you think about the fact that filmmakers have taken Rio Bravo and done such widely different things with it? Do you know what I mean? I mean Tarantino's westerns, Scorsese's gangster films, and John Carpenter's Sauce and Precinct Thirteen. That's a pretty wide range of films to be influenced by just one movie, right? Yeah, no, I would agree. So. What's your background with, with, I mean, Westerns on the whole? I mean, are you more like modern stuff like Leone, Clint Eastwood? I mean, what sort of Westerns would you normally watch? Um, see, I do find Westerns a little bit dry. Um, I f- I f- other than, like, the the Clint Eastwood ones, like the the Good and the Bad and the Ugly, I, I find them quite kind of cheesy. And it's only like ones that have been kind of done for like an updated audience, like Django Unchained and The Hateful Eight. I don't really think you can count The Hateful Eight because it's covered in fucking snow. Mm. But you know what I mean? Like, I feel I find them just kind of a bit tired and a bit dated, but they're good fun. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I mean, I'm similar to you. I mean, my I love Clint Eastwood westerns, including things like The Outlaw Josie Wales and everything that happened from the seventies. Um, I guess you could call Dancing with Wolves a western. Um, you know, John Carpenter made westerns. He just didn't set them in the Wild West. There's obviously the Leone ones. By the time the films that I think I think you and I watch probably some of the same westerns. By the time those films come out, westerns are such an established genre that people are kind of um, trying to do something different with it, responding to them. And and even if you look at this, I mean, th- this film is kind of interesting for the fact that it's got John Wayne in it, right? Who's this kind of guy from? He 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 first started making films in the nineteen twenties, right? In the thirties and forties, he was very much an established figure. But then the other people I've got in this film are much newer actors, like Angie Dickinson, Ricky Nelson, and, and Dean Martin, who was just emerging. He was he was he was a brat pack, not a rat pack guy with Sinatra. So, what did you think of the fact that you had this kind of classic Western scenario and John Wayne, but some? more modern characters than him and would, did did that seem jarring to you when you watched that not for me but I imagine it would have been very jarring for like the people of the time yeah I mean so, I, you know that way you saw Harry Styles in um, Dunkirk yeah that way you're kind of like what the fuck are you doing here yeah yeah I mean that's a, that's a very good parallel because Ricky Nelson was like a young rock and roll singer of, of the 50s who was making his acting debut here or maybe he'd been in one other film, and it was very much like, "Oh, it's Ricky Nelson. What's he doing in a movie?" Like, 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 like before Elvis movies became a thing in their own right, he appeared in a couple of films, and it's like, "Oh, well, Elvis is in a movie." This, is, this was a similar thing, and I, I do think this this film is is it's hard for us to judge, right? Because nineteen fifty nine, I mean, it's it's out of my frame of reference, let alone yours, but this film's sort of looking back at previous westerns as well. I think, I think. In, in, on one very very strong level, this was actually a response to a film called High Noon. Have you seen High Noon? No, but I've heard of it. So, so High Noon is like an allegory of um, McCarthyism and the communist witch hunts. 
it's like people are too frightened to kind of stand up to this kind of evil and the the sheriff is the one person who's going to stand up to to the, the bad guys and the rest of the town is too frightened to speak out because no one wants to lift their head above the parapet and he's kind of trying to find people who are going to help him and in the end he has to kind of face the threat alone and i think that is one particular you know they were already starting to use westerns to tell more than just a story about the wild west they're using westerns in different ways that's like 1950 and in 1959 howard hawks makes this film as a response to um uh uh to that to that film john wayne was enraged by high noon because he was like really on board with mccarthy's witch hunts he was so right wing howard hawks isn't as political as that but he did tend towards like the conservative side i don't think hawks is making a political film but i think he he wanted to make a film where a group of people band together and, and and rise to meet the challenge that's the kind of film he's trying to make so what you get in this is some the classic howard hawks tropes that you get in here are you've got slightly understated characters they're like emotional but unsentimental you know there's this quite strong bond between john wayne and dean martin but the way they express it is is not you know no one no one no one hugs and says i love you man do you know what i mean you've got there was this prototype called the hawksian woman howard hawks liked female characters who stood up for themselves and you've got one of those in here um he was very actor focused so he sticks these actors together the old guy buddy hackett john wayne dean martin and then he, he wants to watch this group of, of people working together um there's quite a lot of it's probably what an early sort of um overlapping dialogue guy because robert altman who went on in the 70s to do things like nashville and the long goodbye and stuff like that he watched howard hawks and said oh wow you can have people talking quite naturalistically you know and tarantino is definitely someone who is into that and he definitely he doesn't like to show off his technique he just kind of wants to show you the story so any technique is hidden um any looks you know you know cuts and you know where he puts the camera and and what he does with his actors he doesn't want you to notice that he wants you to focus on the story so that that's that's where he is um but as, as you were sitting down and got the summary of this film i mean what sort of film were you expecting and what sort of film did you get mate um i think if you read the kind of the kind of plot summary um trying to break people out of a prison and it's john wayne i think you know you're in for a good time yeah you think you know you're in for a kind of a fun kind of cheesy film of its time, and yeah, it was all right. It was, um, I think it was good. I think it benefited from having John Wayne as the lead because then it allowed, like you say, the other unusual um, characters to kind of make their way into the film a little more easy because the focus wasn't on them as much. Yeah, but that's yeah. how I felt anyway. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was. It was fun. It was a bit daft, but. Yeah, it was a it was a good fun time. I think I was a little surprised by this film that it was this film is like two hours and twenty minutes long, right? And films didn't have a like that that's relatively long for a film back then. You you do you do get occasional like long epics back then, but I think it was more common for a film to be under two hours back then, and it's much more common for big films to be over two hours now. And I was surprised that the film was as long as it was, and I was surprised that the film because my my reference point for this was John Carpenter's Assault and Precinct 13, I was quietly surprised that we got a two-hour, 20-minute movie where the pacing of the film is quite deliberate and you have quite long periods where it's like it's six days until the final climax. It's like at the end of this, it's like it develops over time over several nights. 
there were a few different attempts on the on the the guy that's locked up in the jail. All the bad guys are coming to pick up the guy in the jail. John Wayne and his team uh, are, are holding out until the marshals get there to arrest them. And I was slightly surprised to have a story that took its time the way it did because Assault on Precinct 13 is this absolutely bare-ass tight hour and a half, right? And he doesn't let up the tension at all for the full 90 minutes. This this had kind of um, slower bits where people just got to know each other. What did you think of them, mate? Yeah, um, I think that's more kind of typical of like a Western film in 1950s. Like the the films are a little bit different. You know, there's a lot more kind of talking and getting to know characters, whereas now people get pissed off if there's not an action sequence every four mm. minutes. So yeah, I think it was good to just have characters kind of talking. Um, yeah, a bit of a change up. Yeah, I mean, it it seemed to have a purpose for me, all of it, because, you know, you don't get a lot of backstory. I mean, that's something that John Carpenter kind of worked with. You get a little bit of backstory about why the characters are the way they are, but there's this really, really well done scene right at the beginning because you see Dean Martin. Someone looks at Dean Martin and he looks like he's got the shakes and someone drops, he's in the bar and someone drops a coin in the spittoon where all the guys who are chewing tobacco spit their spit out, yeah, which is pretty disgusting. And he drops the coin in there and looks at Dean Martin. And what that tells you is Dean Martin is dying for a drink, doesn't have any money for a drink, and is considering allowing himself to be humiliated by this arsehole in the bar and reaching in for that coin so he can have a drink. So you already know that Dean Martin is a troubled alcoholic, right? And then John Wayne comes in and kind of, he looks kind of disgusted at Dean Martin, like being about to do that, but sort of seems to be stepping in to help him. Do you know what I mean? So you see what something of what's going on between John Wayne and Dean Martin, although you find out more later. And then that scene progresses. And by the end of that scene, it's only like three or four minutes. By the end of that scene, the bad guy has shot somebody over nothing and been arrested by John Wayne. So you've already learned a little bit about the characters in a scene without very much dialogue, funnily enough, because there's loads of dialogue after that. And and the reason the whole film is going to be that the guy's, the guy's shot somebody and now has been arrested all happens in that opening scene. It's like, oh, wow. And you kind of go, all right, I've got an idea of what's going on with these characters now. But then it... Um, it takes it time to build the dynamic. You've got, I, I thought it was interesting because you've got John Wayne as this like older established sheriff, right? And he has this line that says, if you sell your gun your gun long enough, this is all you're ever going to do. You're going to be a sheriff in a town and eventually you're going to be in a gunfight. It's like, he's almost like resigned to the fact that this shit's going to happen to him now and he's not got much choice to be anything different. Dean Martin is a troubled guy. You find out that he's had his heart broken and it turned into drink and John Wayne still holds out hope of him kind of, getting better and it's kind of like this challenge that he's got to rise because he doesn't want he doesn't want to kind of leave John Wayne on his own and this John Wayne hopes that's going to be his motivation to kind of clean up his act and then you've got Rick Nelson who's not as strong an actor as the other people in the film I think it's fair to say but I thought it was quite interesting that he was the um he was the younger guy the young keen he's handy with a gun he's not afraid of a fight he's going to turn up and I almost thought Dean Martin one day is going to end up like John Wayne and Rick Nelson's and one day is going to end up like both those guys. Do you know what I mean? You kind of, there's this dynamic between the three guys. They're probably looking at Rick Nelson and going, yeah, that's what I was like at that age. Do you know what I mean? So you, you get that dynamic of, the, of those guys. Um, what, what did you think of it as like a character study? Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, it was interesting. I think you're right about the Dean Martin character. Just, um, the sheer desperation. Um, and I think it did it quite seamlessly without it being blatantly obvious that they were giving us all these kind of character expositions and all that stuff. Yeah. It was just, 
these these are the characters that you're going to be watching, and this is their story kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I enjoyed it for what it was. I thought it had some good moments. I thought it had some good performances. I'd, I've never thought of John Wayne as being all that much of an actor, but I think Howard Hawks gave him a good character and then played everyone else nicely around him. I thought Dean Martin did a very good job. I mean, interestingly enough, Dean Martin was known as like a comedy actor and a, and a singer at this point. So him playing what is for him a much more serious role, that was him showing what he could do. I thought Angie Dickinson was very good as the kind of um, like professional gambler who's now kind of trying to live a quiet life, who has that you know starts that relationship with John Wayne. Um, it's very generational, though, isn't it? I mean, to us, it just looks like a nineteen fifties western. Do you know what I mean? And the the the. You know, Tarantino was born in 1963, so he saw this film as a kid. Do you know what I mean? And that's that that those films are not that far away from his childhood. And John Carpenter, Martin Scorsese, Brian De Palma, all these people—they would have—they probably went to the cinema to watch this movie when they were young guys. For us, this it, it does feel a little bit like watching a, a piece of history more than a more than a, a film. Did, did, did would you agree? Yeah, it felt like you were watching your granddad's favorite film as opposed to a film that could potentially be your favorite. Yeah, film. I know what you mean, and I think, I think, I think it's quite interesting that what people have, you know, I, I think John Carpenter's films still feel quite contemporary, or that could be my age, but Scorsese and Tarantino are still making films today, and Howard Hawks is a big influence on them. But I think what what people have done, people who were influenced by his film, by Howard Hawks's films, have taken them and done very different and more contemporary things with them, don't you? You almost like, you, I almost felt like I was like picking apart the DNA of all of movies here. Do you know what I mean? This felt like, oh, I can see why they, I can see what they did with this movie, but I, I it's, 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 it's very difficult to look at, um, say Tarantino's Westerns and in inverted commas and this and think they're kind of the same film at all. Right. Yeah. Uh, one, one fun fact to kind of maybe close with is that, uh, this uh, one of the writers on this film was Lee Brackett, a woman who co-wrote The Big Sleep for Howard Hawks and was also a co-writer on The Empire Strikes Back. So the, the roots of this film run pretty deep in Hollywood. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think as far as Westerns go, I'm still a Leonie and Clint Eastwood guy. What about you? Oh, yeah, for sure. So yeah, a piece of film history here. We did enjoy it. It didn't feel like homework, but it was it was more a study of the history of film and how we got to where we did. But uh, like you say, if you like a Quentin Tarantino hangout movie and you like Assault and Precinct 13, or you like the group dynamic of, of Scorsese's films, this is where it all began. So that's Rio Bravo. I reckon it's worth a watch for film fans who, who haven't seen it. And now for the hidden gem feature about a film that is not as well known or as appreciated as it deserves to be. We aim to bring an overlooked and underrated film to your attention and say why this deserved to have more critical and commercial success than it got and why you should watch it or reevaluate it. This month we look at a rare departure by its star from the usual blockbuster franchise fare with far less commercial success than he was used to. The hidden gem for episode 40 is American Made. So James, I've been accused here and there of pushing it a bit with my definition of a hidden gem I mean in particular the frighteners last month and I guess I'm doing it again what's your thoughts on whether any Tom Cruise film can be considered a hidden gem um I suppose if it's not been very popular mm -hmm. if it's one of his earlier films if it flopped so not many people went to see it because 
for whatever reason it just didn't have a good release it wasn't actually as well received as it could have been i think that but then on reflection people actually really enjoyed it when they went back to watch it. i think that's how i would describe a hidden gem yeah so would this be a hidden gem to you american made i think when you compare it to other tom cruise films yes because his films tend to make billions of dollars yeah so th- this of, of all the films where he's been the star and lead actor yeah um, it's his lowest grossing film for over 35 years. Right. I also thought it was very different and less heralded than than his big franchise films. I mean, The Mummy didn't do very well. It didn't deserve to. It was shit, but it had a lot of money in publicity. He was all over, um, you know, the Graham Norton show, you know, talking about this with his co-stars, the way he did it. You know, he's done Mission Impossible and, and all of these things. And even even Edge of Tomorrow, which wasn't as successful as other films, I think it's it, that's a well-known film. People have heard of that. I don't think people talk about American Made, and I think it's so different from what he normally does. The character he plays, the kind of story that it tells, it's so different and much less seen than other Tom Cruise films that by his standards, that's why I thought this was a, a bit of a hidden gem. So a bit of background, Doug Lyman um, started out as an indie director on things like Swingers and Go. He then hits big with The Bourne Identity. Um, he doesn't direct the rest of the Bourne franchise films, but he does things like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, with uh, Brangelina and Jumper. He directed Edge of Tomorrow with Tom Cruise and then they reunited for this. Um, This is about a a sort of an anti-heroic character called Barry Seal, who started out as an airline pilot uh, for, I think, was it Pan Am? One of those, one of those airlines that doesn't exist anymore. Um, And then started smuggling and then was recruited by the CIA to help them with logistics and, and intelligence in Central America and also ended up working for the cartels, helping them transport cocaine back into America, playing not just both ends against the middle, playing about three or four different sides against each other. He's a real-life character. Uh, You can find out what happened to him on Wikipedia, or you can watch this film to find out some of what happened to him. Um, What was your familiarity with with Barry Seal, mate? Had you seen, for example, the episodes of Narcos with him in it, or The Infiltrator with... um, uh, with, uh, Brian Cranston that featured his character. Were you? Were you? How familiar were you with? Were you no, with I mean, Barry Seal? I've, I've not watched that much Narcos. I've watched like two episodes. I couldn't get All into right. it. So, so this isn't this isn't it. So, what what about the kind of character that Tom Cruise is playing compared to normal? Because he's quite anti heroic in a lot of ways. What did you think of Tom Cruise doing that kind of thing? Um, yeah, usually he's the kind of stereotypical good guy that you're always rooting for. So. Whereas this, there was kind of a more of a complex to him where you were kind of like, oh, well, he's doing some bad things, but it's Tom Cruise. So I think it was interesting. Yeah, I mean, you get, Tom Cruise does some things that you don't normally see him doing in movies. I know in Collateral, he played like a really kind of, uh, you know, terrifying hitman villain. And it's one of his best performances. Interview with a vampire. He is kind of the villainous character in that. But like you say, on the whole, he, he does play more hero types. And he, he's actually doing some stuff that you don't see him do very often, especially not these days. He's doing a Southern accent, a Louisiana accent. Um, he's swearing. How often do you hear, hear Tom Cruise swear in a movie these days? I, it's been been a while since Tropic Thunder. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah. and, a, and a zero gravity set or a, gra- it was a gravity-defying sex scene at the controls of a plane. Um, these are not things you normally get in a Tom Cruise film, right? No, it's true, actually. <laughs> I think I've just, ever since Tropic Thunder, I've kind of been desensitized to anything outrageous Tom Cruise may or may not do, and he's a fucking Scientologist, so that says a lot. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think, for me, right, I think if you notice some of the more sort of offbeat stuff he's done recently, it's been, 
you know, he they didn't even kind of have you know like advertise his name in in the promotion of Tropic Thunder. It was meant to be a surprise that he was even in it. And Magnolia is like, although it very much plays on, you know, it it, it adds something that Tom Cruise is playing that character. But he's he's part of an ensemble. And he doesn't often play those characters these days. And Collateral is like, oh wow, Tom Cruise is doing something different. But it, it, he's not actually the lead in any of those films. This is a Tom Cruise star vehicle, so to speak, where he plays. Uh, a pilot who's kind of he uses the Tom Cruise smile and the Tom Cruise charm but he looks a bit older and a bit sort of rounder than you normally see Tom Cruise right he's not at his leanest and he's he's a liar he's a cheat he's a drug smuggler he's helping the CIA fucking overthrow democratic countries in uh, uh, in in Central America D- did you find him sympathetic given all of that, that that's all that's going what did you how did you feel about this character while you were watching it um, I wouldn't say as much sympathetic, but kind of like, oh, how's he ended up like this kind of thing? Yeah, how did he end up like this, and how's he going to end up in the story, right? Yeah. There's a lot of, like, director video, like, making some sort of video diary of what he's doing. There's a lot of handheld footage over the shoulder watching Tom Cruise in it. Yeah, so, bit of a fun fact about Doug Lyman, the director of this film. Uh, the director's father was a guy called Arthur L. Lyman, who was the chief counsel uh, for the Senate investigation into the Iran-Contra affair which is what got Doug Lyman interested in this whole story. Because one of the things that Barry Seal does in the mo- in the film is ships arms to the Contras uh, with money that the CIA's uh, uh, raised in Iran, that whole you know shocking piece of, uh, of American scandal there. Um, how do you think it sort of covered some of the complexities? Because some of it's kind of a bit of a kind of happy-go-lucky smugglers in planes and all sorts of things, but underlying it is dodgy stuff by the CIA and dodgy stuff by the cartels. How did you feel about the way the 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 tone the film used to approach this uh, this subject matter? Um, yeah, I think it was actually quite quite not stark, but you know, but like it condemns it. Do you know what I mean? Like, like just kind of everything that everyone's doing yeah and it's interesting when a film does that like they it felt like they weren't giving their opinion on it but they were kind of condemning like just the bad things that were going on in the film yeah i think it was a case of that you know that sometimes you do get these films where you go that they're so busy watching tom cruise be still quite charismatic and film starry and getting away with it and having so much money that he's got to hide it in cabinets and all that stuff but underlying it, there was still an element of, wow, the CIA did some bad shit in Central America. It doesn't hide that fact at all, you know? And there was the, there was a fair bit of darkness in the film, wasn't there? Which, which you, again, you don't often see in Tom Cruise films. Um, yeah, they kind of they don't they kind of hinge on it like being an end of the world kind of thing, but it's not as much like the kind of depravity of like human beings that we see, is mm-hmm. it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so... There's almost no historical accuracy in this film. Uh, like, just uh, there are little details like Barry Seal didn't just walk out on on Pan Am once he'd start to make some money as a smuggler. He left prior to that and was already working as some kind of smuggler. When, you know, in like private planes when the CIA caught him, they kind of created some scenes which didn't actually happen. And I've gone on in the past about historical inaccuracy in films and, and, and why I you know disagree with it and stuff. My hot take on it is there is almost no historical accuracy in this film, but in this case, it doesn't really matter. What, what, what are your thoughts on how history is portrayed in this film? Um, 
When I say there's almost no historical accuracy, there's a lot of historical accuracy about events, but Barry Seal's life, they play around with the chronology in all sorts of ways. And I think in this case, it doesn't matter. What, what did you think about what did you think about the, the, the historic how important historicity is in this film um yeah not really it's obviously kind of drawing drawing inspiration from like other smuggling films and smuggling stories so yeah it wasn't if, it's, if there's no truth to it I imagine some of the things that they were depicting have happened yeah maybe just not under the name of Barry seal yeah I mean it's it's you know, it's one hundred percent like the case that the CIA was up to its neck in the Iran Contra affair, and they were selling arms to the Contras, and they were, you know, they were they, they were making money from dodgy arms deals to Iran and using that to to fund their adventures in Central America because, you know, they can't, you know, they would rather deal with the communists in uh, in South America than with the the drug dealers that are killing their country, that kind of thing. The cartels were doing exactly what they describe in there. You know, they were, they were flying these shipments of cocaine into the country. That that is absolutely historically, you know, you know, backed. But Barry Seal, you know, it isn't. He's, they've they've kind of changed his character a lot. Now, I the reason I don't think it matters that much is that Barry Seal denied ever having anything to do with the CIA and ever having anything to do with the cartels, and that's clearly bollocks. You can't believe a word he says, right? And the CIA denies doing any of the things depicted in this film. They deny any involvement with the Iran Contras, and that's clearly fucking bollocks as well, right? And the the cartel, no one involved in the cartels is necessarily going to come out and admit that they were a massive drug dealer who killed lots of people. So if everyone is lying through their teeth about what happened, I almost feel like the filmmaker is free to just tell the story he wants to tell it, because at the end of it, you get I think you get a pretty good idea of what was going down in Central America as a result of this film, if you see what I mean. So that's why I think the sticking to the, the the specific facts doesn't matter too much yeah but on the whole did you like the film do you think it worked yeah, it was okay i don't know if i'd watch it again mm-hmm. you know like it i feel like you've seen that film you've probably seen them all yeah i mean i, I mean yeah I'm I'm, th- I'm 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 jabbering away there my, my biggest interest in the film i think is the fact that it's it's an unusual thing for tom cruise to be doing and i think if it wasn't that i'd have looked at this and gone that was fine do you know what i mean i, I mean I, I thought it was enjoyable and i thought there were some good moments um i still think the the best depictions of this kind of thing is is on television i mean if you're not into narcos i think better call saul and breaking bad especially have some fantastic stuff about um you know the cross-border drug trade which I think is just portrayed better in that stuff than it is in uh, than in films. But I thought it was a, it was a, it was an. I thought it was a fun film and it lifted a lid on a few things that you haven't seen in you know in all that much detail uh, before. And I thought it was, I thought it was good that Tom Cruise was doing shit like this. And I, I'd, I'd like to see him do more of it. I mean, do you, do you think Tom Cruise lent lent himself well to this kind of character, or was he out of his depth a little bit? I don't think he was right for this. No. No, I would have given it to someone more, I don't know, maybe a bit, I don't know, younger and someone we're not used to being as like sharp in every film. Yeah. Because, you know, he's always very polished in every single film he's in. Tom Cruise is always very neat. Th- this is this is all a bit more seat of the pants, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. Okay, well, look, that that's our recommendation. If you haven't seen this, I think it's worth a watch. Um, you know, we've we've tempered our, our reviews of it, but that's our hidden gem for this month. The next month, it'll be something different. Mm-hmm. 
Now for the one that got away, where we dig deeper into cinematic history for stories of potentially great films that top directors tried and failed to bring to the screen. We look at what happened, why it didn't work out, and what it might have been like if they'd been able to realise their vision. This month we look how a rising star film director tried to launch the live-action Middle Earth franchise 30 years before it eventually saw the light of day. When it fell through, he turned instead to a sci-fi fantasy creation of his own, which turned out to be one of the worst but most fascinating films of all time. The one that got away for episode 40 is John Borman's Lord of the Rings. So James, obviously you're a big fan of the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings franchise, um, especially the first three films. Um, what did you know about John Borman specifically as a director before before this pod? Not much. I had to do a little bit of research. Yeah, what, did you, what, what did you find out about him? Um, he's not done anything, you know... You know that I would particularly watch, but he seems to have been quite big back in the day. Yeah, he seems to do more producing, or he seemed to do more producing. Yeah, it, it's funny really because he's 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 kind of a highly rated director based on a small number of films, but he kind of I'm not sure if his if he's he's weird because you look at the way he makes films and you look at his style and his attitude. And he should be one of those people that did a lot of stuff in the 70s, like, you know, we've talked about Friedkin because he died this month, and Coppola and people like that. He should be seen as one of these 70s auteurs, but in a way he didn't. And I think he took a few wrong turns in the 70s because he had this really big hit with um, Point Blank in the 60s, which was like a really tough crime thriller. And it's part of that, like, you know how like there's this massive difference between the early 60s and the late 60s? Do you know what I mean? And there's films from the late 60s that belong more in the 70s that actually form part of that. He, Point Blank is definitely one of those. And then he did Deliverance, which was a huge hit and a very famous film. You're aware of the story of Deliverance, right? Yeah, the you got a pretty man. Yeah, guys in a canoe find themselves, you know, at war with, uh, uh, you know, some of the, you know, uh, hillbillies in, in, you know, in, in the back of beyond. So he's this kind of... He's about to have this huge career if you look at what's going to happen to him. He's a British director, but he went to America and I really liked him. Um, and then he went completely off track in the 70s, which we'll talk about in a minute. And then he came back with a couple of sort of late flourishes in the 80s. He did a film called The Emerald Forest, which we'll probably do as a hidden gem one day. It's a really good little film. It's one of your granny and granddad's favorite films. It's about a guy whose son gets lost in... Uh, in the Amazon rainforest, uh, he's an American working down there. His son gets lost, and he goes back to find him years later. It's a fast, it's a fascinating film. You don't see many films like that. And he did a film called Hope and Glory about um, kids being, um, uh, what do they call them? The kids that they get moved off to like farms because London's being bombed. That kind of thing. What are, whatever they called those kids when those kids get moved, uh, moved away, like in Nanny McPhee. Do you know what evacuation, I mean? Evacuation. Evacuation. Yeah, yeah the, the evacuee kids. So he did. And then, and then that's kind of it for him. And he had this really weird 70s where part of the time he was trying to do this Lord of the Rings. Um, what did you find out about this attempt to make Lord of the Rings back in the 70s, mate? Um, it seems like it was a bit of a kind of mess. Like it was going to, it was going to fail before they even started. It seemed like there was no real direction. They just thought, oh, look at these great books. And... Maybe maybe we can get this made, but I don't think I think it was destined to fail before it was even going to begin. To you, be you think they've been off a bit more than they could chew, yeah? Definitely. Like the the reason the first Lord of the Rings adaptation was animated was because 
they didn't have the kind of capacity to make those that film. Yeah, it, 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 there's some stuff in the background to this. So there's a book called Tales from Elephant Hell called David Hughes that where I've kind of read up and, and kind of it's given me hints down the years of some of the things to do for this podcast. And this is one of them. The The first attempt to make a Lord of the Rings film that happened while Tolkien was still alive. And I think he was still alive at coming to the end of his life at the start of this process with um with Borman so we do actually get a chance to hear a little bit about what J.R. Tolkien thought about adaptations of his work because a couple of people approached him in like the 50s I think maybe or early late 50s I think to talk about making a film and they didn't have any real standing or power in Hollywood one of them was a like a, a like a tiny screenwriter who didn't exactly you know it wasn't like you know, a big writer that Hollywood was looking for an idea for is someone who just fancied it was a sci-fi fan. There's a guy called Forrest J. Ackerman, who was a big, he was an editor of sci-fi magazines back then. He was big in sci-fi magazines, but he wasn't big in film. So their version of the film was never going to happen, but they happened to speak to and correspond with Tolkien. They went and had some meetings with Tolkien about making a film. So while that's not worth talking about as one that got away in itself, it gives some interesting background to this story because Tolkien, Tolkien reckoned an animated version of the film was the best option. Funnily enough, he said, while he, you know, because in the 50s, your idea of an animated film is kind of Disney. So he had his, he had his concerns about that. I mean, if you imagine Disney doing a Lord of the Rings adaptation, like, like, like Peter Pan or Cinderella, I, I, I dread to think what that would have turned out like. But he thought animated was the best hope simply because special effects in live action just weren't there, right? He couldn't conceive of it. But he also said he didn't want the story to be all about magic wants and sword fights. He did actually want someone to do the characters and the story that he was trying to tell, which I thought was interesting because there's a lot of spectacle in Lord of the Rings. I mean, do you think, if you hear Tolkien say he didn't want the film to be all about magic wands and sword fights, do you think Peter Jackson fulfilled that brief for Tolkien if he'd had a chance to see those films? Hmm. So I do think there's actually a distinct lack of magic in Lord of the Rings. Like there's very powerful wizards in it but they don't do as much there's the fight between Gandalf and Saruman but it's not like it's not like the magic that we're used to from like Harry Potter when it's all big extravagant stuff it's like kind of discreet yeah I, I tend to and agree actually yeah there's a obviously a, there's a lot of sword fighting in it um, obviously there's lots of battles but I do think a lot of it is built on just like the dialogue and the journey that the characters go on, you know, and the, um, the you know and Sam and uh, Sam and Frodo's kind of struggles together kind of thing yeah, I, did, I think Peter Jackson did quite well with it. Well, yeah, I think yeah, I think we all tend to agree. It's just I it's, think it's seventeen it, Oscars would uh, <laughs> agree yeah. with us. I mean, it's just it's interesting when you when you do have the thoughts of the original author on the. It, it's it's a funny one because you have the thoughts of the original author. I mean, obviously you have like J.K. Rowling's thoughts on what a film of Harry Potter would have been like, but she was very much involved in those films, so it's not a big surprise that those films look like her idea of the films. Whereas Tolkien writes these books in the 50s and they don't get made for almost 50 years. But you have his thoughts on what a film of his would have been like. It's just interesting to see the difference. But in this, I mean, did you hear anything about what John Borman was trying to do in his script? I mean, you can read the script online, but there are articles about what he was trying to do with the story. Did you did you read any of those and what did you think about them? I didn't read any of them, no. I didn't. I, I just kind of tried to focus on like the development. or There wasn't much development, but I saw that the, the script and there was more elements that weren't in the book were going to be included. Yeah, they were, going to drop, they were going to drop them out, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, they, they wrote a 176-page 76 page script, and sometimes it's unfair to judge a whole script on a first draft because you never know what they might have done later. But I think there's a couple of key things. They They were trying to do all three books in one film. Can you see that working? Nope. Um, 
it's interesting when you read the script it does contain a lot of the key moments and lines you'd expect if you've seen the films that actually got made you know there is some of the dialogue from the books of you know Gandalf talking to Frodo about the ring and stuff it is in there right but you would have to leave loads and loads out so it boils it down to the main events it minimizes many of the side missions and subplots which you'd expect Gandalf doesn't get captured by Saruman he just disappears and reappears later um, they're just trying to cut it down. Saruman in particular has his role reduced down to almost nothing. I mean, if it pissed you off that theatrical versions of, of Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings didn't give Christopher Lee enough time, you'd hate this. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It, you know, it doesn't explain why Eowyn can fight the Nazgul. She could just fight the Nazgul. So it's kind of a bash, 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 bash. I think that's one of the big problems. Um, a lot of the differences really are, are in are in tone because Frodo's a lot more of an action hero in this version. I don't think they've got the idea. I mean, what, what, what do you think Frodo is in this story? What, 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 what makes Frodo a good hero for this story is, you know, rather than his ability to fight, what do you think Frodo's all about? I think in the, the films that we've seen, he's very much a kind of timid character who's just struggling to bear the task that he's been given. Yeah. And the support of Sam to kind of get him through it. I wouldn't call him an action hero at all. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, I think what Tolkien was trying to say was, he was obviously influenced by World War II, is the idea of his world is gripped by war and conflict. And a lot of the people who are going to have, you know, some of the people who fight that are going to be people like Aragorn, but a lot of the people in that fight are just going to be ordinary people who have to find their courage somewhere, you know, and have to find, you know, something they're good at which will contribute. So making Frodo a big sword fight and action hero, I think they missed the point on that. And I think... Can you see a live-action version in the 70s being able to cope with the special effects demands of a movie like this? I mean, what do you no, think that what do you think they could what do you think they could have conjured up in a live-action film? What do you think they could have done? Uh, it would have felt very medieval. Yeah, it would have. It would have just. Yeah, no, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have been on board with it at all. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's worth mentioning that what what John Borman wanted to do before he did this film, was a version of the King Arthur story. And because of the huge popularity of Lord of the Rings in the late 60s, I mean, this was a publishing phenomenon by this point. When Lord of the Rings first came out, it did okay. But then in the 60s, when like hippie counterculture and a in greater interest in fantasy novels came out, I mean, people who'd read Lord of the Rings and liked it had actually had big hit books before Tolkien really took off. Like Frank Herbert wrote the Dune books. He'd obviously read Lord of the Rings, right? Even though his book isn't Lord of the Rings. So there's this growing interest in sci-fi and, you know, the fantasy existed in Conan and we'll talk about that a bit later in the next feature, but this blew up. So at this point, John Borman wants to do a King Arthur film and the studio's like, I oh, know Lord of the Rings is where it's at. This is the biggest selling book around. Everyone loves this. Let's do Lord of the Rings. And funnily enough, what John Borman went and did instead years later was Excalibur, which is based on King Arthur, which I think was better suited to him, better suited to the visual effects that he had available. Do you know what I mean? and is a medieval story. I mean, I tend to agree with you. I don't think they could have done it. There are also some stuff that they just didn't like. Um, uh, they didn't really get what they were doing. Apparently, they were considering a, some sort of romantic subplot or even a sex scene between Frodo and Galadriel. I mean, I don't know what your thoughts would be about that. Absolutely not. Uh, that's, see what I mean about this? Just it seemed absolutely disastrous. They were just fucking throwing stuff in. It was nonsense. Yeah, and they I had no idea what they were doing. Yeah, and 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 it fell apart because no studio thought it was viable, practically or financially. I think they were probably right. <laughs> um, and it's weirdly enough because it, for a while, 
Um, Lord of the Rings just stayed in the wilderness. It didn't get it didn't get done live action for another thirty years. John Borman really went off into the wilderness because instead of this, and instead of going straight to his King Arthur film that he wanted to make, he went and did Zardoz, which is a film that just has to be seen to be believed. Um, uh, just just Google Zardos and see what comes up in the image search of of, of a long haired Sean Connery in a red nappy. That'll yeah, tell you, you I've know, it. it's it's funnily enough, it's quite it's a film I've watched a few times because as mad as it is, it is kind of it's kind of compellingly watchable in a terrible way. He then went and did a sequel to The Exorcist because William Friedkin wanted nothing to do with the sequel to The Exorcist. He, he was he was doing other things. Um, and John Borman did it, and it's widely regarded as not only one of the worst sequels ever made, but one of the worst films ever made. But then in the late 70s, it, it's kind of like what should have happened happened, because they then went and did an animated version of Lord of the Rings, which is what Tolkien thought would be better anyway. Now, have you have you ever seen that animated version of Lord of the Rings? I've seen clips of it. It doesn't. It looks like something that would stress me out, like it would give me a headache for sure. Yeah. You're not keen. I mean, I, when, no. I, when I was a kid, that was all the Lord of the Rings you could get. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. I watched it. Some of the animation is quite jarring because it's like rotoscoped over human. And it is quite... It's got quite a powerful effect because like the battle scenes have an intensity and have a kind of... It does give you the fear in the way that Lord of the Rings is meant to give you the fear. Um, but it's still not a satisfactory version of the story because it finishes at the Battle of Helm's Deep. Ralph Bakshi, who made that film, was planning it as two movies. So he was going to climax part one of Lord of the Rings with Helm's Deep. And then he was going to do the second half, like pretty much most of like Return of the King as the second film, but the studio screwed him. Um, and then John Borman went and did Excalibur, which is one of the best fantasy films outside of Lord of the Rings. It's a fucking, probably the best King Arthur film. It's a fucking incredible movie. It feels like the right thing happened. You know, John Borman wanted to do a King Arthur film anyway. Lord of the Rings wasn't viable in live action. So you got an animated film, which was at least something, and then they waited for Peter Jackson. But I wondered what you thought, mate, about... I think we both agree that a, a live-action version at the time with these people wasn't viable. What do you think would have happened, though, if they persevered and tried to do a live-action ver version of Lord of the Rings back then and it no doubt hadn't worked or hadn't been a satisfactory version? Do you, how do you think that might have affected like future chances to do live action Lord of the Rings when Peter Jackson's coming around to do it in the nineties? Do you think it would have changed anything? Do you think it would have affected anything if they had tried and failed, had tried a, 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 a live action Lord of the Rings and done it badly? Do you think that would have changed anything? I think there would have been a lot more trepidation. Yeah, going into it because it sounds like this is going to be an absolute disaster. So you know that way, Batman and Robin. Put was an absolute disaster. And put, and people, put people off, off for Batman years. For, and Batman Begins did a lot in rectifying that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think that's right too. I mean, all Peter Jackson really had to do was say, do it as three films, and I think the special effects will work now, and New Zealand looks like a great place to film this. Do you know what I mean? It, it, felt, like, it felt like Peter Jackson had the had the pitch to, to kind of win people over. But if, if, if you had people saying, oh, come on, remember what happened last time, maybe it would have put them off, you know? So this is, I don't think this is one that we would have liked to have seen. I mean, sometimes, mate, don't we? We talk about a one that got away and we think, oh, I would actually have liked to have seen that. And one of the one or two of the people who wrote in said they would have liked to have seen it have a go. I think it's worth watching uh, Excalibur just to see what John Borman could do when he was on form with a fantasy kind of theme. But I think that that was better suited to him. I think that would give you an idea of what he might have done with a medieval setting. He was going to shoot Lord of the Rings in Ireland and Excalibur Shine Island. Watch Zardos for a laugh, if you don't mind films that are that bad. 
Um, and I do, I do recommend watching the Lord of the Rings 1978 animated version because it was an influence on Peter Jackson. There's some quite impressive visual stuff in there that, that Peter Jackson went back to when he was doing his version. But I think I think we both agreed the right things happened in the end, that this shouldn't have happened. Yeah, I think you're right. We close the features episode with the remake Hate Watch. This is where we shine a light on the lack of originality in the Hollywood boardroom and their obsession with remaking, rebooting, reimagining, or just plain recycling older films. Quite often this is our chance to let off steam and rant at a terrible and unworthy remake which sullies the reputation of an old classic. But every now and again the new film holds up under our ruthless examination and emerges from the Hate Watch with some credit. Later on we will also discuss a remake restoration. Once we finish asking if a remake was unnecessary and should be removed, we will suggest a remake that should happen because it needs to be done right this time. This month we look at how an attempt to bring back Arnold Schwarzenegger to reprise one of his iconic roles fell through, leaving a younger actor a thankless task to replace him. The remake Hate Watch for episode 40 is Conan the Barbarian. So, James, um, we discussed the uh, one that got away Conan film when they were talking about doing like the Conan the King or like the you know, basically an aging Conan story. Um, which didn't happen, I think, partly because because Arnold Schwarzenegger went into politics, right? Um, but what we're now, what we're now doing here is the fact that it, instead of that, they they went and did this instead with with like a rebooting Conan with Jason Momoa as a younger as a younger actor. H- had you seen Conan the Barbarian before we did this Hate Watch? Had you ever seen it before? Uh, I'd seen bits of the original and then watched the full thing to watch the remake. So I knew I wasn't going to make it through the remake. Yeah, so I thought I might as well have watched something Conan just to kind of get an yeah. idea of what it's meant to be like. Um, the first one's cheesy, isn't it? It's not, it's typical Arnie. Um, it's not bad. Everyone my age bloody loves it, but I, 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 I if you, there's a world in which you do a good Conan the Barbarian film now, and you wouldn't do it like the eighty two version. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um. I mean, what what one option that they had when they when they failed to to do the 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 the, uh, the older Arnie Conan film, which they're still talking about doing now, one option was just to give up and not do it. But obviously, what they decided was let's find a young guy and see if he can play Conan. And Jason Momoa had been in Game of Thrones um, by the time they did this film, certainly in the first season as uh, Cal Drogo. Um, I mean, can you see him working in a film like this? I suppose. Do you? I think he looks really right for Conan. I think he also looks really right for if if they were actually going to do a good Conan film that went back to the stories. Um, I could see him playing that that character quite well. I still, I'm still undecided on whether he's really a movie star or whether he's really the kind of actor that can carry a movie. I don't know what your thought thought thoughts are on him generally. I mean, if 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 someone says. There's a new film out with Jason Momoa in. Are you, are you turning out to see that? No. No? What, what What do you think of him as an actor generally? I think he's okay, but like I don't think he's a leading man. Hmm. Do you? I, I, I don't know. I, I wonder... I mean, Aquaman was okay, but obviously it doesn't rest on his shoulders. It's a character from the DC Universe where if the, if the movie works and he doesn't fuck it up, you're fine. But it's not a movie where you say... It's not like... 
Iron Man, Iron Man is partly fine because the MCU is hitting its stride, but it's partly Robert Downey Jr. just fucking nails it. I don't think he's that guy. I don't think he's the guy who carries a film. Really. Um, I do think he could have worked in this. I do think he could have worked in this because uh, Conan originally was like, a, before Arnie turned, you know, I like I like what they did with Arnie, but Conan originally was like a thief. He's a very powerful, big, strong guy, and he's a great fighter, but in the stories, he sneaks in places and steals stuff, but then turns out to be really handy in a fight and a really ruthless character, and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're great, you know, they're great fun. They're not too serious. And I think Jason Momoa could have played that guy, but they didn't make him that guy. They're, so every time through this film, it's like, yeah, they're trying to do what Arnie did. They're trying to be like Arnie. They're trying to be like the original Arnie film. And I think he suffered by comparison so much to that. What, what about the story of Conan itself? Do, do you think there's any point in doing Conan now when you've got far more complex fantasy settings these days like Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones? Conan's much more sort of sword fighting and, and kicking ass. Is there a place for that? Um, I think if they do it right and make it interesting and not just the kind of generic sort of swashbuckling style that we've come to like be used to, then mm. maybe. But if you were to tell me they were making another Conan remake with a different actor that looks like he should fit the bill, would I really give a fuck? Probably not. No. I mean, yeah, I, I, feel, I feel like the time is, um, this time has passed a little bit. But I mean, basically, this film goes wrong in the opening scene. You've got this narrated prologue, which they probably added because the film didn't make any sense. It sounds like Morgan Freeman's like taking the piss out of it. He's like, it sounded like Morgan Freeman on Saturday Night Live taking the piss out of his part in Shawshank Redemption. And then Conan's mother gives birth to him in the middle of battle, like while swinging a sword around, which is just shite. Um, <laughs> it's a dumb film from the very beginning. The director is no one. He's done some dog shit, fucking uh, I don't know, some fucking commercials. But I've, I've there are actually some great directors to start out in commercials. So that, that's one. This guy's just he's no one. He's nothing. So he's he's not adding any thoughts to it. John Milius had some genuine ideas for the original film. Um, the dialogue is ridiculous. I spent the whole time thinking Ron Perlman is in the film for five minutes at the beginning as Conan's dad. He would have been much better with the villain instead of Captain Average from fucking Avatar. Um, the the problem with this is that, that Jason Momoa is made to look average in this film. He swing, swing a sword. There's no good dialogue. There's no characterization. They spend a lot of money on this film, but they spend a lot of money on like a whole load of settings. Like he turns up and rescues a guy from a prison for a two-minute scene that, that fucking adds nothing. You see, well, that's 20 million quid you could have spent on a better climax to the film. I mean, it's re it's just really fucking badly done. Nothing about it's, it. It they it it feels like literally they've gone. Give me the original Arnie film, and we'll do it worse. Every single step, they've got the origin story from the original Conan film, but they take a lot longer over it. Instead of giving him like this, that there are actually like dozens of good Conan stories that the original Robert E. Howard wrote, and then a guy called Robert Jordan and Al Sprague de Camp and um and these other people they wrote more Conan stories. There is no excuse for having a shit storyline because you could have gone to the books and picked up some good stories in the books. And it's just like, you know, I think Rose Byrne was like giving it some for her character. She was quite good, but she has, it's just, did this film have any world building for you? Could you see the fantasy world that they were trying to build here? Me, I, I just couldn't give a shit. You just, see, you're right. See, when she gives birth to him on the battlefield, you think, oh, for fuck's sake. And from that point on, I just knew that they, they just didn't care. 
They, they didn't care. They didn't care what they were trying to do. There was no interest. They just thought, oh, we'll try and ride the coattails of the original Conan and see how much money we can make. There was just... Whatever you think of the original Conan film, there was a design to the cities and the world that made you think, oh, that is the world he lives in. Whereas this was like, well, that's a bit like ancient Rome. That looks a bit like... Did they film that in Dubrovnik? Because it looks a little bit Game of Thronesy. That's just a fucking set with some logs. It was just... Just fuck it. It was... The original Conan world is like dark sorcery, snake gods, and exciting cities writhing with crime and eroticism. There's so much to do. There is so much in there. If you wanted to, like, make it... Try and make the world a bit more narratively complex and open up, you could. If you want to make it just pure action, you could. But this was just... This was just fucking rubbish, wasn't it? I, I, I think Conan's done now because I think there is so much... Unless they were going to do a series or something and find an actor who's just spot on right for it. I, I think Conan's done. I think they've had it. I, I don't even want. I don't even want to see a, a film now with with Conan the old man with with, with Arnie. I think they should leave it alone. De- yeah. yeah, definitely. Mate. Yeah. yeah, I think it's dead in the water. So, having done that and having dismissed that, I'm quite interested in this remake maceration, which is The Last Action Hero. The argument we're going to make is that you should remake Last Action Hero to get it right, because they got it wrong the first time. Now, a lot of people responded to my comments on the social saying the film is fine as it is. I disagree. Um, when did you first see Last Action Hero, mate? When did you see it and what did you think? Oh, it- I think I tried to watch it before after a like a kind of late shift and I didn't bother so I watched it properly um for this. Yeah. So this is the first time you you watched it properly. B- before we talk about what you think of the, the the actual finished film, what do you think of the premise of a of of someone being kind of catapulted into the action hero world and 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 that kind of using it as a quite a clever commentary on how um uh you know what police and action and crime it's like in the real world versus what it's like in Arnie films basically what, what did you think of the idea or the premise it, it was very like Tron but w- you want to be there kind of thing mm-hmm. um, I think it's a really cool idea um, and I think they they could do more with that if they, they did it right yeah I mean I, I think the underlying problem with this and th- this this will be the this will be the tester for you they greenlit the last action hero movie, yeah. But someone someone wrote a script, and you know you, you know as well as anyone that first drafts need a lot of work, right? But they'd seen a draft of a script that was, that was the basic idea. And they gave it the green light, and it was it was released in cinemas nine months after that. Now I don't think that's enough time to get this movie right before you release it. Nah, not at all. It was less than a month. When you think about how much kind of action and and post-production and editing and all that stuff you normally have in these films, do you want to guess how long it was between finishing the shoot, as in the director saying cut and Arnie going home and the movie actually going out in the cinema? Do you know how long they had? How long, man? One month. One month after the completion of principal photography. I'm not talking reshoots. I'm not talking, Arnie, can you come in and overdub some dialogue, right? I had one month from finishing principal photography to releasing the film for its premiere. Now, they do not have time for a writing process which will nail nail down the idea, right? They don't have an editing and post-production process to kind of make the script work, right? Because even if you've got, like, good ideas, editing is huge. 
there's there's a, there's a story that the first cut of um, Star Wars was was baggy, and Spielberg Spielberg was friends with people like Brian De Palma and sorry George Lucas was friends with people like Spielberg and Brian De Palma people like and showed it to his friends, and when it didn't quite work, he recut it. He re- it, it this is a film that worked right, but he re-edited it and went oh now it fucking works because that scene follows that scene and you cut from that scene to that scene. They don't have time. They don't have time to get any of this. They also spent too much time making it, promoting it. They actually put a rocket in space with Last Action Hero on it. They put they put a, a, a spacecraft of some kind up in low Earth orbit with Last Action Hero on the side as part of promotion of this film. And there's an element of, oh, well, we're satirizing the, the excessive expense in all these Arnie films. But it's like, really, they just... It, it was never going to make its money back because they spent too much on it and they didn't give it a chance to work. Um, so... What what would you do to get this film right? How 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 would you put it right? I would try and buy the rights to maybe a video game or an existing movie, and from there try and make a story from it, as opposed to just Arnold Schwarzenegger okay, playing a complete, a completely fictional one. Yeah. Yeah. So imagine, like, I think it would be quite funny to do something like The Witcher. And then you get dragged into the Witcher and you're having to follow Geralt on all of his mad monster hunts and you're completely out of your depth. Something like mm. that. As opposed to, not necessarily that because it would take away from what they're trying to do with the Witcher, but you know what I mean? Something that was um, already established and done, yeah? Yeah, definitely. And I think go from there. Try and make a story from that. Yeah. I mean, I... There's a couple of things that I would say are definitely just about the way you make the film rather than the premise because that's an interesting thing. I, I genuinely hadn't thought of that. Take something that's already real and kind of kind of do it in a very meta kind of way. I I, that's, I hadn't thought about it this. But a couple of things, if you're going to do it right, here's what you got to do. The tone has to be right and stuff like that. Tone is everything. If you see something like Groundhog Day or or Galaxy Quest, just the the tone of the that that in you know that interaction with the story just has to be spot on and the the kid is seen you know these rich successful filmmakers who were writing last action hero people like shane black and people like that they were seen uh, this kid is seen as one of the little people who depends on movies to distract from his shitty life but they've absolutely overstated what a shitty life is and a part of the tone felt like saying so you really think our lives are shit don't you filmmakers you just think we've got nothing to live for apart from your films do you know what i mean it, it just it just came across really crass i think it would have been better to focus more on how much this kid loves movies and how much they inspire him and how much he knows them because then the story is because one of the fun things about galaxy quest is the fans know how to work the shit better than the actors do do you know what i mean and I think this kid's love of films, it, you know, this is 1993. The kid should have been a young Tarantino. The kid should have been someone who knows every film and has seen every film. And this is how he operates once he's in the, do you know what I mean? Because they go on and on about how he knows how all the films work. That, that's got to be the story, I thought. Um, so I think the real world should prove, should have been boring rather than hell. I mean, maybe he's, maybe he's not having a great time at school. You know, maybe he's not particularly happy, but... I think it'd been better for it to be like a boring small town rather than what's this kid doing in like New York at night, you know, walking past sex clubs. Do you know what I mean? It just, it, it never felt right. Any of that. And they had to get rid of all the desperation jokes. I mean, an animated cat. I mean, why the fuck have they got an animated cat in the cat in this film? Do you know what I mean? Um, I think the story was, was cluttered. I think the whole film premiere subplot didn't really add anything. I think they needed to streamline the whole thing. Um, but it's interesting what you say about take something established like The Witcher and catapult them into it. 
What do you think about the fact that the people being satirised in this film are the actual people making the film? Shane Black, who wrote a lot of the, the scripts of those big blockbusters that they're taking the mickey out of, wrote the script. Arnold Schwarzenegger, who starred in a lot of those films, is the star of the film. And John McTiernan, who directed Die Hard and, and Hunt Fred October and, 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 and Predator, Predator, is directing the film. I don't think he's got any comedy talent. But even if you've gone Richard Donner, you know, because he, he did Lethal Weapon and there are comedy in those films. Do you think it's right that the people being satirised are the ones making the film? Is that too on the nose? Are they, are they not going to have enough perspective to get it right? No, I think you can do it right. I think Deadpool's very on the nose and it's hilarious, so... But yeah, Deadpool isn't isn't being directed by and, and, and the guy who directed Deadpool isn't directing any of the films that they're taking the piss out of. Do you know what I mean? Oh no, totally. But like, what I'm saying is, is that the the obviously it seems on the nose when they've got all these people in it, but they could have easily gone down that angle of satirizing it a little mm. bit because that kind of on the nose humor does work. Yeah, I mean, I think the on the it's not so much the the, the on the nose humor, but I mean, imagine if they'd done Galaxy Quest, got the actual cast of Star Trek to play the roles, or you know, uh, Ben Stiller's character in Tropic Thunder is like a Mickey take of like action heroes and a little bit of a Mickey take of Tom Cruise. Imagine if they got Tom Cruise to play the main role rather than the cameo role, and imagine if they'd actually got Russell Crowe to play Kirk Lazarus. Do you know what I mean? What if does it does it just is it a bit too much if, if the people being taken a piss out of are actually playing the characters themselves? Do you know what I mean? No, I think that's quite funny. I think that's sort of self-awareness that we you, don't really get You'd from be all right with that. All right. I mean, you'd be all right with that. That's fair enough. And another thing that they, they kind of threw away in the original film is that they mention it, but they don't develop it, in that the boy's lost his father. The boy's father is dead. And the character that Arnold Schwarzenegger is playing has lost his son. And they don't do anything with that. And instead of actually playing up that this guy needs a son and this guy needs a father and that's how that you know that that's how they play it, I think it would have been better to actually give it that. I think it would have been quite fun to just do a little bit more with. Imagine the characters in the film are actually genuinely affected by all the shit that happens to them in the film. Do you, I mean the villain is is absolutely baffled and, and driven mad by the fact that he keeps losing and none of his none of his henchmen can hit a barn door, and. Arnie's character is suffering because how does he let anyone else be close to him ever again because all of his sidekicks all of his partners all of his kind of people that he loved get killed because that's that's required of the movie I thought it'd be interesting to play on that a little bit in the film I thought it'd be quite an interesting emotional hook to say what if the Arnie character doesn't want this kid to get too close because he can't stand to lose anyone I don't want another sidekick because my sidekicks always get killed you know yeah But I mean, I, I think mainly it's about this film being tighter and being getting enough time to get written right, getting enough time to actually get made. I don't think John McTiernan's the right guy, right guy to direct this. I mean, if you're doing this back then, would you would you get an, a comedy director and try and get them to do action, or would you get an action director and try and get them to do comedy? What would you do with directing at this point? I don't know. I think I would definitely go down the route of comedy. I don't know who I would pick though. Who would you pick? A, a comedy, a comedy director who can do action. Yeah. Um, I think Richard Donner might have might have been the guy to do it. Th this is a bit left. Actually, Martin Bress, who did Beverly Hills Cop, because that's an action movie and a comedy. I reckon he could do it. He also did Midnight Run, which is I think he's I think he would have done a nice job because he 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 made the action is good in his comedies. Do you know what I mean? But 
here's a bit of a left field one that I was going to throw out here because of a film he did two years before Last Action Hero is Tony Scott. Yeah, because he did his his film The Last Boy Scout was quite meta. It actually it it, it basically gave Bruce Willis a character that was like riffing on all of the characters Bruce Willis had played up to that point. And I think also Tony Scott would, I think Tony Scott was, would, would be good enough to do it, but also just have someone who's going to really give the film a lot of style. And Tony Scott would not allow a film to go out badly edited. You know what I mean? He would say, look, let's fucking do this. He might do it over the top. He might do like action that, you know, get, get, goes wild, but he just wouldn't allow a film to go out that was baggy and messy and everything else. You know, I'd still go for Charles Dance as the main villain though, because I thought he was very good. Um, fun fact, they wanted Alan Rickman to play Charles Dance, Charles Dance's character. And obviously, okay. the, and obviously they'd be spoofing the character he played in Die Hard. I mean, is that, would you, would you have gone with that? Yeah, you know, absolutely. Yeah. You would have Alan Rickman in the, in the, in the villain part. Yeah. I, I can see it's almost like we should, we should have done, if we we're going to do remakes, we should do two versions, your version and my version. Cause we're, 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 um, we're direct, diverging a little bit. Because my idea for the main character is to not have Arnie playing him and not have Mel Gibson or Bruce Willis or any of the people who actually play those action heroes in the, those those big hits like Die Hard and Lethal Weapon and stuff in the main in the main part. Would you still want it to be Arnie? Nah. Who who, who would you have? Who would you have? For them? Would you would you just replace him with Bruce Willis or something like that? Because Bruce Willis but, can can do the comedy. I genuinely think Tom Cruise. You think Tom Cruise to to play like the the main guy in in, in this? Absolutely, and if he even addressed the Scientology, I think we could knight him. <laughs> Here's my thoughts for this is for the idea of doing a, a remake in in 1993, like the do this in 1993 instead of what we had. My ideas, uh, Liam Neeson, have him go okay. for the action stuff when he's a bit younger. Because um, I actually think Liam Neeson is really very funny, even when he's playing characters in like. Like in a very deadpan way. Have you ever seen his his cameo appearance in that Life's Too Short, the like Ricky Gervais Warwick Davis thing? Yes, I thought he was absolutely hilarious in that. Even though he's playing he's playing Liam Neeson as not funny, you know, and being and being completely unable to do comedy. I thought he was just so funny in that part. I thought that would be quite good. But the other one I thought for for this, and I don't want you to thought, but I think he'd have been the right age in 1993 if he were going to redo it differently back then. Is Kurt Russell? Okay, what would you, what would your thoughts be on that? Yeah, Kurt Russell can be quite funny because he's sort of he's sort of action adjacent. He's adjacent to those characters, and he did a film with Arnie, and he was doing those types of films. But he was never actually in one of the big blower action films of the late eighties, like the Die Hards, the Lethal Weapons, you know, the, you know the Arnie films like Terminator Two. And I just thought it'd be interesting to see him. I think he could, he could embody that character without actually being that character but i think i'm envisioning a different film to you though mate i'm envisioning a film where they don't make it quite so on the nose where they actually make like the like tim allen rather than william shatner playing the captain is my kind of vision of this whereas i think you, you you're actually really on board with with being on the nose with the actors from the actual films are taking the piss out of and going full meta i think we've i think we're doing quite differently i think we've got different visions if we were going to do this now, do you ever thought of who the main actor could be to do a character like this? Do you mean for the action hero or? Yeah, if we we're going to do the action hero now, if we were going to do someone to take the piss out of the the action hero characters now, could, could you see who who would who would who would do it now for a modern day person to cast in this? 
Tom Cruise, one hundred percent, is the action what, guy. What even now? Even now, twenty first. Even century. now, even yeah, yeah. now, that's funny as fuck. Yeah, I was thinking Chris Pratt, but yeah, Tom Cruise now. That would be nah, 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 nah. I suppose. What Tom would you do? What would you do with Tom Cruise? What, 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 what? What's Tom Cruise doing behind the scenes in Last Action Hero? Is he putting ice packs on his knees because he's actually sixty and it's actually a miraculous that he can still do the running around? What, what, what's his life like? I think you just antagonise him. <laughs> Watch him get really irate. <laughs> he just gets he just gets angry at the kid because the kid can predict everything he's going to do. Yeah, and he gets really angry about it. He's like, you've not died in any of your other films. There's no risk at all. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tom Cruise actually ends up killing himself doing a stunt. Yeah, 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 yeah. That'd be good. All right. Well, look, I think de- definitely, I think, I think we're agreed on. You know, don't don't rush this out. I, mean, I don't know why the studio does this to themselves. If they make this film for the summer of 1994 instead of the summer of 1993, I think they'd have had a hit with the people and ideas they had then. Because they brought in some big writers. I think William Goldman had a pass at it. I think Carrie Fisher, in her script Doctor Days, had a go at it. They had the people to make it work. Shane Black's done funny films. I mean, Predator is quite funny. So, and actually Shane Black wrote The Last Action Hero for Bruce Willis and Tony Scott. And that's a really underrated film, which takes the mickey out of these action tropes. So they could have done it back then if, if they'd just given themselves more time. I mean, the, the the failure of the original is just an example of too much money and not enough ideas. But I think I think we envision slightly different redos here, don't we? I think you envision a sort of a more on the nose, and I'm, I'm yours is more like Arnie and 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 the film direction at the time, and mine's more a bit more Galaxy Quest. So it's interesting that we came up with different ideas for this. That's all for this month's Double Reel Features. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to my co-host, James Adamson. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. American Made is currently streaming on Netflix or can be bought very cheaply if you want your own physical or digital copy. The story of John Borman's Lord of the Rings is told in the book Tales from Development Hell by David Hughes. The original script is available to read online. Tune in next week for The Big Conversation where we'll pitch some new ideas for blockbuster films. We look forward to speaking to you then. Take care in the meantime.